podcast contains adult themes. episode we take a box, an ordinary box, an unmarked box, a box whose contents are a mystery and whose origin and destination are unknown. And together we discover what's inside. Together we explore the connections and associations its interior yields. This, this is Unmarked Box. What is this impulse to create? What compels us to make art? At first blush, you have to wonder why humans, some of them at least, have developed this inclination towards artistic expression. What evolutionary function could it possibly serve? Sure, some artists are successful, their works allowing them to survive and procreate and perhaps transfer their art-making genetics to subsequent generations, but the majority of them are not. If taken as a whole, art is a commercial failure. Whatever successes there are are dwarfed into utter insignificance when placed alongside these failures. Artistic products that have never left the shelf. That mammoth garbage pile of paintings and books and films and albums and podcasts and websites and whatever else that no one wants but which proliferates by the millisecond. In the time it has taken you to listen to this sentence, 8,657 new podcasts have been created. 
Of these 8,657 new podcasts, 0.000078 will find an audience. Given the limited opportunities out there and the very low probability of generating any sort of income from your labours, why do artists persist? Are they all deluded? Blinded by self-belief? Do they really believe that if they are good enough, they will be noticed? Even though they have not accounted for the peculiar confluence of conditions that are required? Even though there are factors outside of their control which could prevent their success no matter how sublime their efforts? Factors such as their race, their social strata, their country, their government, the whims and limitations of the marketplace, the indifference of an audience encountering something that is too radical for their sensibilities? Or do they know the commercial unviability of their endeavours going in? Does art provide a different function in their lives? Does it give their lives meaning? Is it not the economics of their output that matters, but the psychological benefits? If this is indeed the case, how exactly are our souls being comforted by art? It is easy enough to understand art from the perspective of consumption. Through art we can see ourselves and others and discover new perspectives. We can feel emotions and experience the pleasure of aesthetic construction. We can appreciate manufactured beauty. But it is not so easy to grasp what the artists gain from production, at least those artists whose art is never consumed. We can hypothesise what an artist whose work reaches an audience might gain. Financial remuneration, self-worth based on public and or critical acceptance, satisfaction in producing something that has given others pleasure. But in the case of the neglected artist, we have to remove these things from the equation. Is there something about the act of creation that is inherently fulfilling? Does the creation justify itself independent of external factors such as critical and commercial recognition? One wonders if today's artists would still produce art if they were raised in a vacuum, if there was no one else to see or hear their work, if, more importantly, there was no possibility of another person ever seeing or hearing their work. Would they still create? Approaching this problem from a different angle, there is a possibility that there is an evolutionary advantage to consuming art, and I intend the term to encompass works of popular culture, which necessitates the existence of artists. That is, the psychological stability that the consumption of art can provide results in an increased likelihood of survival and propagation, even if the same is not necessarily true of the artists themselves. Indeed, if we are to believe the popular image of the tormented artist, it could even be the case that artists are demonstrably less likely to survive and propagate than their non-artistic contemporaries. How would this be possible? Evolutionary theory famously teaches us that genes are selfish, that is, they function only to reproduce. I'm taking some rhetorical license here, of course. They are not acting as agents in their own right, inasmuch as they are things whose characteristics will either contribute to reproduction or not contribute to reproduction. The genes which do not contribute to reproduction in some way will simply be bred out of existence somewhere along the line. So one method by which the propagation of artistic genes might be possible under this paradigm is as a means of improving conditions in general. 
Consider it this way. Let's say we have two factions of humans. One faction has produced a child who, through a random mutation, contains a gene which inclines her to create some form of art. We'll call this one the art faction. The other faction does not have such a child, and we'll call that the non-art faction. These factions are identical in all ways but the impulse to create art. Okay, so let's say the child in the art faction grows up and through studious practice manages to create art which the rest of the faction appreciates. And her art is such that it provides psychological comfort to the rest of the faction, even though she herself is denied this benefit and is, for the purposes of our example, less psychologically stable than her peers. Now, let's imagine that there is some catastrophic change in climate that affects both of these factions equally, something that impacts food supplies and survival rates. The additional psychological stability has provided the art faction an advantage here, and they are better equipped to deal with the situation than the non-art faction. This turns out to be the deciding factor in whether the faction is wiped out, as is the case with the non-art faction, and whether the faction survives to foster a new generation, which is the case for the art faction. This has therefore rendered the artistic gene a tool of reproduction. If it had not been there and our artist had never created her masterwork, she, along with the rest of her community, would have been wiped out. So although she may be individually less likely to reproduce than the rest of the faction, she would not even have had the opportunity to reproduce if this impulse did not exist and the same catastrophic weather event occurred. Now I'm exaggerating for effect here. The difference between the two could be infinitesimal, as long as it is just enough to make a difference in propagation rates. And you have to look at it at a macro level, not an individual level. If we accept that communities with artists have better chances of survival and propagations than communities without them, we can begin to understand how these genes remained in the gene pool. The artists were improving the conditions for life around them, and the flow-on effect was that these conditions raised everyone's reproduction rates, including the artists. This might also explain why only a portion of the population has this impulse. A community would not need each of its members to produce art. They would only need enough artists to satisfy the needs of the community. The gene just needs to exist in enough people to ensure that some of them produce art that improves the conditions for life. So those struggling artists out there, those tortured souls trying to reconcile their impulse to create with the deafening silence which greets their creations, maybe they are just there to boost the odds. Their existence is a sacrifice. It allows the life-improving art to exist. And every artist, individually, must come to terms with which category they belong to. They must look themselves in the mirror and wonder if their day will come. And the terrible reality is that you can never know for sure. Maybe that is the true reason why so many people persist. This is only a theory, of course, but it does make you wonder. It makes you wonder about all the people out there making podcasts under the assumption that what they're doing is worthwhile. Most of these podcasters confront a very basic question as they prepare the next episode. Is anybody listening? No. Maybe there is a voice in their head telling them to give up. Give up. No one is listening to unmarked box. A voice that is their own. A voice that represents the anxiety they feel about what they're doing. A voice that tells them what they secretly know. That their day will not come. Who's going to listen to a podcast about boxes? I mean, what the hell do you think you're doing? Even if someone does end up listening to it, what a sorry waste of time that would be. If anyone has spent even a minute of their lives listening to this podcast, you should feel 
ashamed. Genuinely ashamed. Now, it would be different if it was something that had merit, like Radiolab. If your podcast was Radiolab and it had cool sound effects and science and that thing where the host paraphrases the guests so you don't have to listen to them badly finish their own sentences, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd, I'd leave you alone, even if no one was listening to it, because I'd know that if someone did happen to stumble upon it by accident, it wouldn't waste their time, you know? I'm not some asshole in a voice. I care about what we, or rather you, let's be honest, it's you, put out into the world. I'm thinking about the bigger picture. I'm thinking about other people. A voice that is persistent, persuasive. A voice that is impossible to tune out. Sorry, can I just ask, do you really think this is good? Like, really? Again, I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm genuinely asking you, do you think this is good? I mean, you can't think it's good, right? You can't seriously think this is good. A voice that robs you of whatever joy you might have had in the act of creation. Hey, I, I think, you know, I think it'd be fair to say I know you pretty well. Like, I know you better than anyone else could know you. That's not a controversial statement, that's just a fact. And because of that fact, I should have a pretty good idea of what you're capable of, wouldn't you agree? Like, if you were a great artist, I'd know. And wouldn't you also agree that the right thing to do, if I knew, for example, that you were definitely not a great artist, like definitely, definitely, definitely not, would be to tell you, to try and get you to, uh, I don't know, stop going down a path that can only lead to misery. Maybe get a stable public service job, set up a Bumble account, think about an investment property. Like, wouldn't you have to agree that that would be the responsible thing for an inner voice to do? Like, if they knew without a shadow of a doubt that, for example, you were definitely 100% not a great or even a good artist? It'd be hard to hear, I know, but you'd want to know, right? You'd, you'd want to know before you got too deep in, right? Like... Put yourself in my shoes, like, let's switch positions for the sake of argument. Let's say you're me and I'm you, as in, you're my inner voice. Uh, actually, we could even act it out right now. That might be the best way to illustrate my point. Let let's do that. I'm going about my day making my little podcast, and meanwhile, you're my inner voice, and you know that it's a terrible podcast, like, the worst, and that it will never be good, and that I'm wasting my time, and I should be looking into pursuits commensurate with my abilities, or I'll never be happy. That's the setup. Okay? Ready? All right, let's go. Okay, you don't need to say hello. You're my inner voice. You're not a stranger or an unexpected guest. You can just start talking. Okay, we'll go again. Hey, what are you doing there? Alright, now that's wrong too. You're my inner voice. You know what I know. You know what I'm doing and I know that you know what I'm doing. Okay, so let's start that again. Maybe you should be doing something else. Hmm? What do you mean? I don't know, like getting an investment property. Getting an investment property? Why would I do that? I'm an artist, a great artist. And I'm in the midst of creating art in the form of this dumb podcast about boxes. Sorry, that was bad. I know I shouldn't say it like that. That's bad improv. Let me go again. Feed me the line again. Um, why don't you get an investment property? Get an investment property? Why would I do that? I'm a great, amazing artist and I'm making this great podcast about boxes, which is art. I'm not some boring guy who gets investment properties. Okay. No, 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 you can't fold like that. That's not what an inner voice does. An inner voice is supposed to nag at you. It's supposed to be unrelenting. I mean, that's the whole reason why people listen to podcasts. It's to drown out their inner voices. We'll go again. I've just said I think I'm a great artist and I'm not an investment property dude. What if you're not a great artist? Excuse me? What, what if you're not a great artist? But I am a great artist. 
How do you know? What do you mean? How do you know you're a great artist? Are you saying I'm not a great artist? No, no, I just wondered how you know. I just, no, I don't know. Okay, but, well, let's take this podcast you're making, the box thing. Unmarked box. You said it was art earlier, but have you heard it back, like the old episodes? I mean, yeah, I listen back once or twice after I make them. And? And what? Do you consider what you heard to be great art? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd use that term. It's, it, it's not really for me to say. Not for you to say. You just called yourself a great artist, didn't you? I, I guess I did. So how can you call yourself a great artist if you don't know if you produce great art? I, I mean, I mean that's a, that's a fair point. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Okay, so look, these investment properties are like printing money. All you need to do is take out a loan from the bank so you can buy one, get some tenants, and then negatively gear that motherfucker. Negatively what? Negatively gear. Do you know what negative gearing is? No, I'm an artist. Or at least I thought I was. Okay, it works like this. When you take out a loan from a bank, you're required to make interest repayments at regular intervals, right? Right. Well, if those repayments and other outgoings are higher than the rental income you're receiving from the property itself, then that property is negatively geared. If it's the other way around, then the property is positively geared. Okay, so what does that mean for me? Well, if it's a negatively geared property, you can offset any loss you make, that is the difference between your outgoing expenses, such as your loan repayments and your rental income, against income from other sources and reduce your overall taxable income, which means, in effect, you pay less tax. What income from other sources? You know, like a job. I don't have a job. I mean, if you had a job. Listen, these tax breaks are killer, but there are advantages to positive gearing too. It just depends on your financial situation. I don't have a job. Okay, well, you should probably get a job first. It'd be hard to get a loan from a bank without a job. What sort of job? I don't know. What, what do you think you'd be good at? Podcasting? No. What have you done before? Maybe you could find something that fits in with your employment history. Uh, I've worked in a call centre. Okay, well, that's a start. Call centres provide valuable customer service experience and opportunities for career progression that can act as springboards into rewarding and challenging careers within other call centres. Did you enjoy it? No. Were you good at it? No. Okay, well, that's okay, that's okay. I mean, people don't always have to have their dream job, you know. Most people fucking hate their jobs, and that's okay. Your life doesn't have to be your job. And you know, it, it's only temporary. Once you start down the investment property road, it's only a matter of time before you can retire and let the money come to you. But I can't do that straight away? No, unfortunately not. You'll need to work first. But I don't want to work. No one wants to work. Work sucks. But, you know, at least we get the evenings and the weekends. It wasn't all that long ago when humans were throwing rocks at each other all day and getting eaten by lions. Compared to that, work ain't that bad, you know? And like I said, it doesn't have to define your whole existence. You can still have a fulfilling life outside of work. Doing what? Anything you like. Like making a podcast? Well, yeah, technically you could make a podcast, yes, if that's what you wanted to do. But is that what you'd want to do with your free time? Um, maybe? Okay, I'll put it this way. Does it bring you joy? Does it bring me joy? Yes, just labouring away at this podcast week after week bring you any form of joy? I... No. If I'm honest, no, it doesn't. Then probably don't make podcasts with your free time. So what else should I do? Anything that actually brings you joy, like watching TV or having a loving relationship. Having a loving relationship? Someone to share your life with. 
Oh God, I, I wouldn't want anyone to share my life. Why not? What do you mean? Like, I have a pretty bad life. Why would I want to share that with someone else? That seems really mean. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Once you have a job and a partner and a negatively geared investment property, your life won't be terrible anymore. It'll be worth sharing. Okay, but even if I did get a job and an investment property, how would I get a partner? The normal ways. What are the normal ways? You know, it could be in a bar, or on a train, or, or through a dating app. A dating app? Yes, dating apps are increasingly popular and there's no longer a stigma around meeting people this way. They aren't for losers anymore. But I am a loser. No, I mean, they're not just for losers anymore. Everybody uses them. They're still for losers as well. I don't know. I've, I've always had trouble with the idea of approaching someone in that way, even on an app. The idea of giving someone unwanted romantic attention makes me nauseous, and honestly, I'd happily trade in my future happiness to avoid that. Okay, I hear you. You sound insane, but I hear you. Fortunately, there's an app that inadvertently caters to this exact situation. Bumble. Bumble. Yes. Unlike Tinder, where traditional gender roles are replicated in online form and there's an expectation that men will be initiating contact with women in the majority of cases, Bumble actually prevents men from making the first move, meaning you can only interact with a woman you've matched with after she's already decided to message you. Though this feature was technically designed to prevent harassment and empower women, an unintended consequence is that men like you won't have to worry about putting yourselves out there. Oh, actually, I realise I made a mistake there. I made the default assumption that you were interested in a heteronormative relationship, and although it is statistically likely that that is indeed the type of relationship you'd be interested in, making assumptions such as this without checking first only reinforces the notion that heterosexuality is an invisible norm and that other types of sexuality is somehow abnormal and on a different playing field, which contributes to a climate in which harassment based on sexual identity can flourish. So, are you heterosexual? I think so. You're interested in women, at any rate? Yes. Okay, then this feature of Bumble will be ideal for you. Just note that it does also cater to same-sex pairings, although in the more traditional manner wherein both parties can initiate contact. Unlike its competitors, however, it does not accommodate genderqueer or transgender people at this time. So, I just sign up and women will come to me. Fingers crossed! I mean, you still have to find someone you like and match with them first. That's where you've both independently indicated to the app that you like the look of one another. But once that happens, yes, women will initiate contact. And then they'll be my partner. Well, I mean, that's not quite what I meant. You have to respond to their message and, and build some sort of rapport. Then, if that goes well, you'd arrange to meet up somewhere and see if you have IRL chemistry. And if that goes well, you might continue to meet up and it'd potentially grow from there into a proper relationship. That sounds really hard. No, no, it's really not. The hard part is trying to meet someone cold. You know that. And this takes care of that problem, because when you're talking to them, you already know they're interested in you, and will welcome the attention you're giving them. But... what if I fuck it up? That's okay. That's all part of the process. Everyone is in the same boat. It's one thing being rejected in a bar after approaching someone who did not wish to be approached, but it's entirely different when you're in an app expressly designed for meeting people, where the whole point is to try and find the best person through a process of trial and error. It's all part of the dance. But how do I make people not hate me? What, what are you talking about? Like, if a woman sent me a message, what would I say in response that would make her not instantly hate me? Okay, what the fuck? Are you serious? I just don't know what I would say. Alright, how about this? We'll do a roleplay and I'll show you how easy it is. You be the woman and you initiate contact and I'll respond as if I'm you. Um, okay, what should I say? Just something normal like, hey, what's up? Okay, I can do that. Hey, what's up? Nothing much, just enjoying your picture. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You're very beautiful, you know. 
Oh, stop. You're not so bad yourself. But I don't want to convey the impression that I'm superficial. I read your profile and I appreciated what it revealed about your personality, independent of your evident beauty. I see you're into movies. Yes, I, I love movies. Big fan of movies. I'm a bit of a movie fan myself. What are your favourite movies? Oh, I have so many. There are so many great movies. We'd be here forever, lol. Oh, what about just your top five favourite movies? Oh, that's so hard. It's so hard to choose just five. I'd be, I'd be leaving out so many movies I love. It doesn't have to be set in stone. Just name what you consider to be your top five favourite movies as of this moment. Gosh, a top five. Oh, um, oh, this is really tricky. I just love so many movies. Okay, look, don't worry about the ranking. Just name any of your favourite movies. Oh, which ones to choose? Just one. Just name one movie you've liked. Just whatever pops into your head. Oh, gee, this is so... How about just name a movie? Just name any movie. Just name any movie at all. Oh, gee. Name a motherfucking movie! Oedipus the King. Do you want to meet up later? Are you kidding me? No, I could buy you a nice dinner. Have you fucking grilled me about my favourite movies? I wouldn't say grilled. I was just trying to find out more about you. You yelled at me. I didn't yell. This is a text-based messaging service. You used all caps. That means yelling in my book. Okay, well, clearly we have different books. As far as I'm concerned, all caps indicate smouldering intensity. Whatever. It doesn't change the fact that you relentlessly questioned me about my favourite movies, even though it was obvious I didn't like being put on the spot and you should have moved on. Well, you say you love movies and, and you couldn't even name one movie you loved. Listen, the reason I did not name a movie is not because I couldn't think of one. It's because I could sense what you were doing and I resented it. What do you mean? Okay, well, you were scrolling through Bumble and you found someone you thought was attractive who also shared your passion for movies. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that we both enjoyed movies and we both found one another attractive. You had to know what specific movies I was into. You had to quantify my taste to see if it measured up to your standards. You couldn't just let my favourite movies come up organically in the course of the discussion. You had to jump straight in there and ask me to fucking list them off. It was just so I could know what kind of things you liked to help the conversation get going. Bullshit. That isn't what you were doing at all, and you know it. You were intrigued when you saw on my profile that I liked movies, but you were sceptical. You probably formed an idea in your head about the types of movies I like. You probably thought I liked obvious movies, easy movies, nothing obscure, foreign, art house, cult. And then you wanted to test if you were right. And it was a test, wasn't it? You were trying to measure what type of person I was based on what movies I liked. If my choices were good enough, I would pass. I'd be a person worthy of your attention. Isn't that right? I mean, you're putting it awfully cynically, but would I have judged you if you'd told me your favourite movie was Shadow Conspiracy? Yes, yes I would have. I do believe that the art we appreciate does reveal something about the people we are. I agree that it reveals something about the people we are, but it is far from everything. And it is simply ludicrous to make snap judgments about people based purely on their top five favourite movies. So many factors influence those choices, and everyone is approaching it in their own way. All this list-making bullshit makes me sick. So what if I did like Shadow Conspiracy? It would be a dream come true! I've never met a woman who likes Shadow Conspiracy, and Lord knows I've tried to meet one. Wait, you like Shadow Conspiracy? Like it? I fucking adore it. It's my second favourite movie. What's your favourite movie? Citizen Kane. One of the best movies ever, in my opinion. Um... Okay, what's your third favourite movie? Vertigo. Good, good movie. And your fourth? Tokyo Story. Sad. Okay, I have to ask. Why is Shadow Conspiracy your second favourite movie? It's my aberration. Everyone has an aberration and Shadow Conspiracy is mine. 
I know it's not a critical darling, but it's an important film for me. It is the one film which separates my list from myriad other lists out there. It's what makes my list me. And that's what I look for in other people's lists. Not the critical favourites, not the obscure art house movies or left field choices from canon directors, but the aberrations. The movies that don't seem to belong in the list. Their inclusion is puzzling, breaking apart whatever theory you had formed about this person's taste based on the other entries. You know, so much of list-making culture is about trying to present yourself in the best possible way, like, like it's this public display of your credentials. It is about cultivating an image more than it's a true reflection of who you are. That's why these aberrations, when they're included, are so valuable. They offer a peek beneath the armour to the person within. For good or ill, I am Shadow Conspiracy. And Shadow Conspiracy is me. Hey, you know, I'm happy to admit when I'm wrong. That's actually quite sweet in a way. That's not what I was thinking when you were asking me those questions. It's okay, I understand. I mean, I can only imagine the sort of loser guys you have to deal with on these apps. <laughs> yeah, you don't know the half of it. So you want to grab some dinner? Actually, I don't know. I'm starting to feel like it was a bad idea to start dating again. How do you mean? Well, I'm getting on a bit now. I'm not in my 20s anymore, and I have a history behind me. You know, I've had good relationships and bad relationships. I've been through it all. That seems like the ideal time to find the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. Does it though? I know that's what you're supposed to do. I know that's what my parents did and what their parents before them did. And you know, most of my friends are married with kids by now, but shouldn't we examine this model instead of unthinkingly accepting it? Could I not live a happy and fulfilling life as a single woman? I mean, you could, of course, but how would you know you wouldn't be denying yourself something that would make you even happier? Like I said, I've been in relationships before. They're really not that great. Yes, they have their ups and their downs, but think back on the happiest time you've had in a relationship. Wasn't that better than being single? Okay, look, I'll concede that it was better than being single and wanting to be in a relationship. But was it better than being single and content? Maybe not. I don't know, I, I get the impression that this is a bit of a smokescreen and there's something else going on here, like you had a bad experience. Oh, I've had plenty of bad experiences, but it's not that. You want to know what I think it is? The reason I feel like this? I've never been in a relationship that has lasted for more than two years. Not one. Doesn't matter whether it was a good relationship or bad relationship or something in between. None of them has ever gone beyond two years. And I've had a lot of relationships. I've been out there, in the trenches, on the front lines, trying to find the person I want to share my life with. And no matter how promising things have seemed, once we hit that two-year mark, it was always, sorry, I'm not feeling it anymore. <laughs> you know, I've broken my fair share of hearts. I know how these things work. But the regularity with which this was occurring, it, it started to give me pause. It was clear that some sort of pattern was emerging. Why were these relationships not lasting? What was the common factor? Then it hit me. It was me. I was the reason. But I didn't consider this revelation cause for despair, as you might expect. After all, you can't solve a problem until you've identified what is at its root. And I had done that. All I needed to do now was work on a solution. So that's what I did. I started by altering my behaviour. I tried being more 
upbeat and supportive. I tried being cool and casual. I tried everything. I dyed my hair. I even changed my career a few times. None of it took. Then I thought maybe a more drastic change was in order. Previously, I'd been quite assertive in my relationships. What if I adopted a more passive role? I ended up getting involved with a man who was essentially looking for a housewife. Someone submissive and subservient and entirely dependent on him. And I became all those things. In my haste to experiment, I had not considered the toll keeping up such a performance would take upon my psyche, let alone whether or not I actually liked this man, but I kept up my routine and hoped for the best. One day he returned home from work just as I was placing a tray of fresh madeleines on the kitchen counter. He smiled at me approvingly as he removed his coat, and in that brief moment I saw myself as he saw me, as a compliment to his lifestyle. I knew then that I was not and never had been a part of his life. To become someone that he loved, I had become someone that I hated, and it broke me. I didn't date for a long time after I left him, nor did I desire to. I had given up. But though I had stopped my search, my heart was still functioning, and after an accidental encounter with a ginger-haired man in Balaclava, I found myself falling in love once again. He was unlike anyone I had ever met. He was sweet and charming and, above all, strange. And he seemed to genuinely enjoy being with someone who made him laugh. He didn't exhibit that pathological need to be funnier than the woman that I'd encountered in so many men before him, none of whom were half as amusing as they thought they were. He was just different. It was the healthiest relationship I had ever been in. Then, two years later, to the day, he broke it off. He said it wasn't me, that he needed time to figure out what he wanted, all the usual stuff. But at this point I knew there was no escaping it. It was me. Either I had a two-year expiry date and people just grew bored of me over time, or it was something much, much worse that two years was the length of time it takes for a person to truly know me. Even when we are in an intimate, trusting relationship, we wear a mask. We act in a way that we hope will please the other person. We try to obscure our more unsavoury qualities. We perform the role of our best self. But over time, this mask begins to erode. And although it is never fully removed, our true character can be glimpsed through its cracks. So maybe these men were finally seeing me for who I was, not who I pretended to be, and they couldn't stomach it. They couldn't love the person underneath the facade. And honestly, I wouldn't blame them if that was the case. I can't love that person either. That person has anger problems. That person doesn't always act honourably. And she's hurt people. She's hurt them really badly. At this point, I think it would be best if I just stayed away from people altogether. Now, come on, I think you're being a bit melodramatic. We've all hurt people and we've all been hurt. None of us can escape that. It's the risk we take when we put ourselves out there. No, you don't understand. Like, I've really hurt people. 
Everyone feels the same way, trust me. Breakups are always painful. You have to let yourself off the hook. No, this is different. I've been through the same thing myself. I get where you're coming from. Like, I took a lead pipe and, and we've all taken it. Sorry, what? And, and I just kept beating them. Them? Yeah, the kids. Kids? Yeah, these little brats. Sorry, victims. I have to say victims. The victims came to my door one Halloween and I just snapped. Uh, I didn't have any candy because, you know, it's not fucking America. And one of the little victims threw an egg at me and I went after him with a pipe. If you ask me, it's kind of an eye for an eye sort of... No, 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 sorry. I know it's wrong. It's not forgivable. I, I can't defend it. Are they okay? Yeah. Pretty much. It's not even a big deal. No, 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 of course it's a big deal. I beat kids with a pipe. It's a big deal. It's a massive deal. Pretty much? Yeah, I mean, the, the kid who threw the egg sort of took the brunt of it, but he's alive, so... I... I guess that's good? The fucking jury, I'll tell you what. A group of men attack a lone woman. She defends herself, and she's the one who gets punished. Wait, you said they were kids? Well, young men. Like, how young? Like, single digits young, but men are men, you know, it's not like they're any better when they're smaller and stupider. You know what I'm talking about, I saw you self-identify as a feminist on your profile, down with the patron, sorry. I'm misappropriating feminist rhetoric in order to rationalise away the true nature of my crap. I was the perpetrator, and they were the victims. Jesus Christ. See, I knew this would happen, you're, you're judging me for this, right? You, you think I'm a bad person. Well, you, you assaulted children. Yes, I assaulted children and it was wrong, arguably, sorry, definitely, but I was tried and convicted and punished. I've served my time and I've been reintegrated into the community. Do I really have to pay for this for the rest of my life? What about the children? Aren't they paying for it the rest of their lives? Ah, they're fine. How do you know? Have you asked them? I mean, obviously I'm not allowed to come within 500 metres of them, but they're older now. I'm sure they've forgotten all about it. And, and besides, if I'm supposed to pay for this for the rest of my life, why did they release me from prison? Just because you've been incarcerated and then released doesn't mean that's it. It doesn't obligate anyone to forgive you for what you did. So you don't believe in rehabilitation? You think people who commit crimes should suffer forever? No, that's not what I mean. But I don't think it's as simple as pretending the crime didn't happen once you've done your time. It's something you have to own up to and, yes, live with. Just as the victims have to live with it as well. Of course it will impact the way other people think of you. There's no avoiding that. There are always consequences to our actions, whether mandated by the state or not. Consequences such as never being able to have a relationship again. No, of course not, but you have a responsibility to tell people about this aspect of your past, and it's up to them to decide if they can be in a relationship with you or not. It's something you'll have to work through with people. I just don't think it's right to hide it. Hey, I told you, didn't I? Well, I mean, it came up, yeah, after you delivered this 10-minute speech about every relationship you've ever had. What, you think I should have opened with it? You think my opening gambit should have been, hey, I beat some kids with a pipe, DTF? Or better yet, should I put it in my profile? Under interest, should I have had assaulting defenseless children with lead pipes? No, no, look, you're not hearing me. Well, what should I do then? If I don't put that information out front, then I'm hiding it. If I do put it out front, then no one's going to talk to me. Okay, I'm sure there's a middle ground here. You just have to find the right moment to bring it up. How would that go exactly? Alright, how about this? You be a random guy on Bumble, and I'll be you, and I'll show you a way you could introduce this information into the conversation. It might not be the perfect method, but it'll give you some idea of what I mean. How's that sound? Pretty stupid, but I'll indulge you. Okay, great. I'll start. Hey, handsome. Hey, handsome? Are you kidding me? I'd never say that. That sounds fucking moronic. I'd have a better chance with, hey, I'm a child abuser. Alright, I'll change that, but don't get caught up in the details. This is just an example. 
We'll go again, okay? Hi there. Hi, I'm a man. Okay, you haven't done improv before, have you? God, no. Imagine being a violent criminal and being in an improv troupe. Look, it doesn't need to be anything fancy, but it will work better if you at least try to sound convincing. Just mimic the style of men you've interacted with on here before. Alright, fine. I'll do my best. That's all I ask. Okay, let's go. Hi there. Hi, you're hot. Cheers, what are you up to? I'm at the gym. Really? Really? What are you doing there? I am working out my muscles. Bet you're building up quite the sweat on those bad boys, huh? Uh, hello? Sorry, that just took me back. Um, yes, I am working out and also sweating. Nice, nice. What are your thoughts on the rehabilitation of violent offenders? This conversation has taken a disarming and unexpected turn. Like, for example, do you have a problem with them re-entering society after completing their sentences? I guess it depends. On what? On the nature of their crimes. Okay, well let's say it's a violent crime against an innocent child. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, my sister has a kid and I wouldn't be comfortable knowing there were men like that out there. Even if they had served their time. What if it was a woman? I mean, that shouldn't really change anything, should it? What if it was me? You? Yes. What if I had committed a violent crime against a child? Well, I'd be very surprised. Okay, and? And... I don't know. It, it would feel different if it was someone like you. How so? Well, people who do things to kids usually look gross, so there'd be a kind of cognitive dissonance when I looked at your picture and imagined you committing a crime like that. Do you think you'd be able to get past it? I mean... I know it's bad, but, well, you are pretty hot. Like, I'd probably hook up with you, but I don't know about introducing you to my parents or anything like that. You're saying you'd sleep with me, but you wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. I, I guess. I mean, I might not even want to hook up, but if you were down, you know, I, I could do it. That's pretty fucking low, I must say. Why? Why do you care so much about these criminals because I'm one of them so you're down I wouldn't sleep with you if my family's lives depended on it why not we matched because you're a pig why am I a pig because although you don't believe that people who have committed crimes against children should ever be free to walk the streets again you'd still fuck one if you thought they were hot enough hey take it as a compliment babe you're trash you know that wait you commit a violent crime against a child and I'm trash I'll have you know it was a violent crime against children. There was more than one. Jesus, what the fuck did you do? I attacked a group of trick-or-treaters after they assaulted me first. Are you still there? What year? Hmm? What year did you do this? Oh, um, it would have been... 1997. Thornbury? Yes, how did you know? Because in 1997, I went trick-or-treating with my friends and I ended up getting beaten with a lead pipe by a crazy woman who refused to give us candy. I was in hospital for four months. That's quite a coincidence. A woman who looked like you might have looked 21 years ago. You're scaring me. What are the odds? Cut the crap. I know it's you. No, really. I attacked a different group of kids. In the other Thornbury. Alright, I'm ending this now. Wait, wait. It was me. I was the crazy woman with the pipe. And I'm so, so sorry.
I know there's nothing I can say that would make it better, and I don't expect you to forgive me, but I just want you to know how sorry I am for what happened. I can only imagine the pain and trauma I must have caused you. I'd like to say I was a different person back then, but that'd be a lie. I am the person who assaulted you in 1997, and I will always be that person. You know, I spent years coming up with excuses for what I did. I'd tell myself I was provoked, or that I was going through a stressful time in my life and I lost my temper. I even used to act up around doctors in the hope they'd diagnose me with some kind of mental illness. It's taken me a long time, but I finally realised that all I was doing was searching for an out, something I could blame my actions on, something other than myself. I've been running from that fateful Halloween night for 21 years. In some ways I feel like I've been running all my life. But now it is time to turn back and confront who I am and what I have done. No, I meant the podcast. Oh.